0: Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional Scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss Agile topics.
1: Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. All right, and we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right.
2: So this week we got Steve Porter on the podcast with us. Steve, um, you're probably better at introducing yourself than myself, but you, Steve, works at Scrum.org. is also a professional Scrum trainer um, like Jeff and myself. Um, go ahead, you fill in the rest of those gaps that I, that I
0: have. It's always this tough one, it's like, so what? what is it you do at Scrum.org again? Like, what is it you do? Um. So, yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm an employee at Scrum.org. My my job really is focused on empowering and enabling our trainer community. So, I go and work with trainers to make sure they have what they need, to go out and be awesome with uh spreading the mission of Scrum.org, working with their students, which is obviously the the most direct way that professional scrum trainers engage, but also trying to support them and speaking at conferences, um, working with customers. I think I, I, I would, I would think most people, maybe they don't know this It's good to tell them. So our professional scrum trainers, a lot of them, most of them don't train full time. They have, they have real jobs that they go out and they work with customers and they, they do consulting and those sort of pieces. And I help with that as well. So I'm all about enabling our professional Scrum trainer community, so they can go out and do awesome stuff.
2: Awesome. So we were talking before we started recording about different topics and the topic of accountability and responsibility with different roles within Scrum uh, came up. And so we thought that'd be a good place to dive into it. Uh, So let's talk about, um, how about let's start with the product owner Um, and some of the stuff that they're accountable for and responsible for. So they're accountable for, Value delivery, right? We get say that optimizing and maximizing the value delivered. Yeah, well, that's, and
0: that's uh, already, I, I, it's fun when you get a whole bunch of PSTs together, a whole bunch of scrum geeks together, language matters and those sort of words matter. So you said accountable for the delivery of value. And I know some trainers will very quickly go, no, 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 not the delivery of value. The delivery actually happens by the development team. They're the ones who are actually delivering the value. Product owners are responsible to make sure that the, the work that they do is of the highest value possible. So they kind of choose what to work on. Hopefully that what they work on is the most valuable thing as, in, as, as it possibly could be. And then they pass that off the development team. And then they're accountable for the delivery of the actual pieces of work, which is totally 100% scrum, geeky, nerdy sort of thing. Um, but it is, I, I do like these sort of discussions because often when you you're talking about team dynamics and the dynamics between people and trying to figure out where they fit in and, and what they have ownership over and what they, what they, they can influence, but they don't own the sort of discussions, the sort of words you use really matter. Um, you talk about the product owner, right? I always think about they, they have the final say on that product backlog, Right what's in the product backlog, what's not in the product backlog, how the product backlog is worded, the ordering of it, all sorts
2: of things. So for its matter, we're saying the product owner is responsible for the product backlog. But as far as accountability, could they be accountable to the order of it? I guess they are also accountable to it, right? But they could delegate that.
0: uh delegating the responsibility is something i encourage every product owner to do and this is again getting a little not only scrum geeky but a little word nerdy as well right the whole difference between accountable and responsible interesting um side note for your listeners uh the scrum community uh obviously there's people around the world doing scrum uh scrum has been translated into like what 20 30 different languages uh which i think is awesome um the, idea, the, the This concept of accountable and responsible, depending on which language you're dealing with, in some languages, they basically mean the same thing. Um, the one that I always think about is in the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch. When I talk to our Dutch, Dutch colleagues and I talk about accountable and responsible, they're like, well, it's all just the same word. And if you're an English speaker and you're a nerdy English speaker, it's like, no, 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 they're very different. They're like, accountable is making sure that it happens. And if it doesn't happen, ugh, I, mean, I always hate, it's, this is a nasty way of putting it, but your neck is on the line if it doesn't happen, right? Um, but responsible is just doing the work. So product owners, accountable for the value being delivered, right? If uh, the way that I often talk about with my students is if a product's not selling, if you have unhappy customers because it doesn't have the features that they want, go talk to your product owner. They're the one who should be making the decisions about what the development team is working on. Don't yell at your developers if the product's not selling. That's to a certain degree, it's not their choice what to work on. And there's some nuances there obviously, but there's they, they work with the product owner, product says go build this and they go build it. So if customers aren't happy, don't talk to, don't, don't talk to the development team, talk to the product owner. Now, if that what they build is of low quality, all right, Or when you get to the end of the sprint, there's nothing built. All right, development team, here's your level of accountability, right? You need to create done increments, uh, done as in high quality. you need to create quality increments every sprint. And if you're unable to do that, like, that's that's what you're accountable for. So that's where some of these nuances come into play. And I don't know if you ever run into these issues with your students part of the reason I run into it is I have to work with the trainer community and having some consistency across trainers is important to talk about this. And then the, the challenge of dealing with people in different languages and how they try to wrap their head around this.
2: Cool. So, so, okay, let's, let's, let's dive a couple of deep items deeper here, right? So. Um, <clears throat> Let's talk about, you said quality before, and one of the ways that we measure quality or have consistent quality is our definition of done. And so this is one that I think surprises a lot of students when we start talking about definition of done, when we say the development team is accountable for creating the definition of done and accountable for quality. Um, and I'll get pushback sometimes as a product owner, well, I want to be a part of that. Like I wanna I wanna say what quality is because I really care about that. And so this is one of those ones where you have to have the conversation about, well, you're a key stakeholder, right? Like you care about this. A poor quality product is gonna reflect badly in the market, and that's what you really care about, the value that's being delivered. And um, and so yeah, that's that is something you care about, but it's not something that you have the responsibility for, right? Of creating,
0: I always encourage I always encourage the members of my Scrum team to work together to come to some consensus. Consensus building can be great when you are a team, um, and I really hope people don't pull out their accountability card. Right, where a product owner says, "Hey, I am account, I am hey, I am accountable for the product backlog. I have the final say. You have to listen to me because I am I am in charge." Um, hopefully, you can find a compromise.
2: Yeah, I think that it's it's a it's good to see that not card not be played, but having everybody be aware of where the accountability truly lies and where their boundaries of responsibility really are is a really helpful thing for people to understand, um, you know, when they just have a say and when like I should be the one owning this and I have the, you know, pure accountability. Cause I think when there's that mix up, that's where you get a lot of tensions and a lot of conflicts.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I think about, um, one of the things I love about Scrum is its fast feedback cycle. You have no more than a month to get some hopefully tangible return on your investment, get some value delivered. And sometimes to move things forward, you need to just say, all right, let's just go with it. Um, I worked uh, uh, on a scrum team where um, during planning, I would often as product owner come up with these really crazy ideas, and my development team, I'd get some pushback, and they're like, Well, I'm not sure we should do this. And every once in a while, to cut off the discussion, uh, members of the development team would go, You know what? Steve's the product owner. Let's just do what he says. And it would just move us forward. And if I was wrong, well, we'd find out in no more than a month that it wasn't a good idea. And being able to acknowledge that someone has the final say can help move things forward, which we need to do when we're trying to do something with a rapid feedback cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, definition of done is a really nasty one um, because uh, you've got the development team who does the actual work. They're they're the one who are creating the done increment. So you'd think they would have some say in it, the people doing the work. Um, The product owner uh, is, if we're talking about long-term return on investment, and the, there is there is value in having quality. So having some influence, some say is interesting. And here's something that, honestly, another trainer brought to my attention because it was something that I hadn't read in the Scrum Guide, um, is the influence that the organization plays in the definition of done. There's one sentence in there that says, if the organization has set quality goals, development team, the Scrum team has to follow it. So you could say the development team has the final say, but if the organization says, well, no, hang on, we've got some quality measures that you have to follow, then guess what? You've got to follow them, which intuitively kind of makes sense. If I work for a company and they says, you know, if we're going to put anything into production, it's got to be run by the legal department or whatever crazy thing you want to create. It's hard for a developer, a person who works for that organization to say, no, we don't want to do that. We're... Self-organizing, uh, it's like, yeah, that's, self-organization doesn't work that way. You, sometimes you need to have boundaries.
2: Yeah, I, I the way I could like to explain it too is that that boundary though set by the organization is the floor, not the ceiling. So this is the baseline and you can expand on top of that. So if it's unit test code coverage and the organization says it has to be at 60%, there's nothing saying you as a team can't get it up to 80% and say that's what ours is. Um, Or do something, you know, add something extra into the definition of done that's not even covered in any part of it, like maybe a legal review, if you if you work with a lot of like insurance policies, and you and you need something like that. Um, Yeah, so I think that's another one, too, where just understanding um, where that comes from, and where those responsibilities lie, um, can help you to really figure out who does what in that situation.
0: Yeah. And this idea that it's a floor, not a ceiling, I like that. Um, I may borrow that. Um, and I do like the... Scrum's got a whole bunch of constructs that that are similar to that, right? It's, it's we're, we're identifying a bare minimum. But if you want to do it more and you find value from it, then do it more. Um, one of the one of the reoccurring myths that you hear people talk about with scrum, it's like scrum, scrum is all about big batch. You're only delivering to production once a month. Like, no, it's all about continuous delivery and continue release and continuous, continuous, continuous. And I say to people, if you, if you want to, you know, release to production, if you want to have production ready, excuse me, software uh, multiple times a day, excellent. However, at least once a month, Make sure you've got something that is production ready. Uh, At least once a month, meet with stakeholders. At least once a day, get together with your team members to talk about what do we want to achieve this sprint. At least once a month, come up with a goal and a plan to achieve that goal. And if you want to do it more often, awesome. Do it more often, right? It's a floor, not a ceiling.
1: Yeah, I I like to think about that really just the whole framework, that minimal but sufficient uh, mindset of... And and Don did a, just an incredible job of really hammering this this home in in the PSPO course that I had taken with him. But like Scrum is a framework, it almost requires you to be adding things to it to make it a process. It, like you can have a marketing team that's a Scrum team and the mainframe team that's a Scrum team. But when you go and you look at their process, the things that they have added to Scrum to make it unique to their context, they're going to be very different, but they're still going to do a daily Scrum. They're still going to have a sprint review. They're still going to have a sprint retrospective. The foundation, the framework is still the same, but the things you have added to it um, make it y- your own. You, you make it a process at that point. Yeah,
0: And hopefully a continuously improving process, um, which for me implies a continuously changing process uh, and an acknowledgement that sometimes the changes you make aren't necessarily going to be for for better. Um, Interesting story. So scrum.org, we do scrum, go figure. Uh, And uh, one of the things that I always smile about at our own organization is we'll occasionally make a change to how we do things. And uh on occasion, we'll make a change, and someone on the team will point out it's like, "Hey, we used to do things that way, and now we're going back to that, implying that it was wrong, right, implying that it's like you know this is this is dumb, like we started this way, and then we changed it, and we're going back again. What a waste that was And I have to kind of shrug, and it's like we learned something." And and maybe that short term change that we made, maybe it was the right thing to do for that short period of time. And now things have changed again and we're going back. Like people seem to get annoyed when they change things, right? It's like, oh, why why are we doing this? And it's like, well, this is how you get better. And this change that you're making to your process, right? uh, It might suck. It might be really bad. It might be something that we never want to repeat ever again, but the good news is at least with your horizon is no more than a month, right? Uh, And if you've got shorter sprints, it's even less. So I always encourage people to experiment with the change of the process, right? Because scrums gives you a framework. You need to build your own processes. And if you want to try something crazy, try it. Let's try mobbing mobbing sounds just like this really new cool thing. It's like, oh, I'm not sure about this mobbing thing. This sounds kind of crazy. Give it a try. Try mobbing once in a sprint. And if you do it and you don't like it, all right, you've learned something. Try something crazy next week.
1: I, w- I was thinking about, as you were talking about um, changing the way you do things uh, you know, f- frequently, um, there's one of the big learning takeaways, having just taught the PSK a few few weeks ago now, like that was one of the big things in there. It's just like if your workflow hasn't changed in, in six months, you're probably doing something wrong, right? Like continuous improvement, it's, it's not just for Scrum, you know, it, it's for Kanban as well. Um, and really thinking about your overall workflow. What are the experiments that you're running um, to try and change these for better or worse? Um, it should be continuously improving, which means it's in a continuous state of change. Sometimes it's going to be for the better, sometimes it's going to be for the worse. But overall, it, it sh- there's a state of flux that's continuously happening.
2: Yeah. I think we also have to watch when you're talking about changing, um, that you're not changing the framework, right? Scrum is a framework. It has specific elements that are a part of it. And I think you said this actually once, Steve, at a face-to-face. Maybe it was even a couple of years ago. You might not even remember you saying this, but I thought it was really insightful and it stuck with me. Um, is that if somebody goes ahead and they maybe start doing Scrum, but then they they don't, maybe they don't do daily Scrums. Maybe they don't do retrospectives for retrospectives. Maybe they don't do have a sprint goal, right? They're, they're not, they're missing some core elements of Scrum, but they're delivering done working software that's, that makes their customers happy and they're doing it in 30 days or less. I think that's awesome. And you, I think you said something along the lines of, "Let's go to the bar. I'll buy you a drink. You can tell me how you're doing it." Yeah. Um, that's 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 a great thing. But it's not Scrum, but it's it's still incremental delivery, which is which is what we're really trying to get to, so that we can learn from an empirical process, um, right? So I think I think that's the other thing to keep in mind as you're as you're making changes to your process is that there is a framework there. So like keep the framework but make changes around the framework. The framework's very flexible once you know what po- parts are flexible and which parts aren't. Yeah. Um, I'll go back to a story I, I had with a client um, somewhat recently and it was a marketing team and it was a big organization and they were talking about how they wanted user stories. Everyone should be using user stories across the board. And it just didn't work for them. And so I said, well, let's try um, hypothesis-driven development. Let's just let's, let's think about hypothesis. What are we doing for what campaign? What are the results we want to have? And how are we going to articulate that problem and start focusing more on those outcomes? And then we'll try to deliver that all the way to done in 30 days or less. And, and that worked really well. But the user story format just didn't work because they're not building something for a user. They're building it to market a product. And they have a guess, an experiment they're going to run, and then we're gonna test that and then we're gonna put it into a bigger like campaign that's more automated. So it's just one of those things that there's a lot of resistance to doing something like that. But that's one of those things where that's why self-there's self-organizing teams that say, This works well for us over here, and this might work really well for you over here, and they don't have to be the same.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point to make. And uh, that 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 comment that I talked in, I I can kind of in the back of my head here what the things that I would I would say that and it's when I talk to people. And I talk about being a Scrum trainer. I talk about work about Scrum and I work for Scrum.org. Um, one of the things I will often remind people or I, I feel it's good to remind them is I, 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 I'm I like, a Scrum enthusiast. Like I kind of like Scrum. I'm certainly not an evangelist. I stopped using that word uh, just because of the connotation uh, around uh, religion. And, and it's just that I don't want to, it's not that I have anything against religion. I, actually, I prefer to, Religion's awesome. I, I don't want to equate Scrum with religion. Like, scrum is just a, or religion is just this amazing thing. Scrum is just this framework, right? So I'm an enthusiast, much like you would be in sports, right? Um, however, if someone shows me something better than Scrum, right, and maybe even has some evidence around that, I'm going to kick Scrum to the curb. Like, I have, I'm as, as enthusiastic about it as I am. If someone gives me something better, I'm all for it. And this is why you'd mentioned if I run into someone and they're doing awesome things and they're not following the framework, oh, please tell me all about it. I'd love to learn what you're doing. And I'm certainly not going to tell you that, oh, you're bad. You're not doing a daily. You should start doing dailies. That would just be crazy, right? Um, the, I do encourage them if they've found a better way of doing something that doesn't follow the rules of the framework. I tell people, give it its own name, right? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, take credit for it, right? If you found a better way of doing Scrum, don't call it Scrum. Call call it your own Jeff's amazing new framework for value delivery. Take some credit for it because you should because that's an awesome thing if you can create a different set of rules to help people deliver value in, in short bits and continuously improve. The other reason I would suggest you call it something else is just to not confuse people because if you're Doing something that's not Scrum and you're calling it Scrum. Scrum is so well-defined. Someone might show up at your door and it's like, oh, you're doing Scrum. Great. When's the daily? And they're like, well, we don't do it daily. It's like, what? Huh? What? So the more clear you can be about your processes, probably the better it is to communicate around with other people. But really, if you found better ways to do something high five. Like, really, I'm, I am so happy for you. And, and tell me about it. I would love to, and I will spread the word to other people about this great new process you've discovered.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting that you're bringing up just the, the consistency around messaging with what are we, or are we not doing? And I'm curious for, for both your perspective on this, but I see that often with, with clients is they just, they latch onto terms without understanding what they are. And so, Oh, um, the easy example is the business analyst. Congratulations, there's no business analyst in Scrum. You're now the product owner. Um, and so now we've set this expectation that we just, we've got business analysts that are, we call them product owners, and we're going to hire product owners. And so when we have real product owners come in the door, they're they're left wondering well why am i just writing requirements documents like this this doesn't seem to jive really well and i think there's a big danger there exactly to what you you were talking about is is if we're doing x we should call it x um, for clarity not just with our employees but for people we're trying to bring in like i would be pretty pissed if i got hired as a product owner and then all of a sudden i'm just writing acceptance criteria all the time yeah. like here's, that's not
0: what on backlog. i you need to you need to write these up
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm curious, you know, how are, is that maybe just something I'm seeing? Are you seeing it in in, in other organizations? What, what are your thoughts?
0: The, um, I, I, totally agree. The, the one that jumps out to me right now and not to, not to pick on them because they often get picked on by agilist, but, uh, safe, the scaled agile framework, um, their definition of scrum masters and product owners, um, don't quite jive with what I've had with how the Scrum Guide uh, talks about those two roles, and I do know that when I've worked with organizations that have implemented Safe, in a lot of those organizations the product owners are empowered, the Scrum masters are are doing what they need to do, like they are empowered roles doing exactly as they should be doing, which is cool. Um, in some organizations, not so much, and. It makes me a little sad because the they're trying hard to follow the guidelines in SAFE, which is good because people are looking for help in uh, moving to agile software delivery or agile product delivery, and they and they need some help, and SAFE is certainly trying to help them get there. But then they bump into this one little spot that it's like, well, we've got scrum teams. And I want to be doing scrum and I'll be doing safe. And then I have this and this doesn't, this doesn't jive. This doesn't make sense. And I think they're missing an opportunity to maximize the value of their teams by taking those two roles and really deprecating them, really making them, disempowering them, making them either the go between between teams in the, in the case of a scrum master, uh, part time role, uh, which in the case of a scrum master or as a product owner, very Team focused and not business focused, which is, a, uh, I think, a very missed opportunity. And you run the risk of having a, dis- a team that is disconnected from the needs of their stakeholders. And that's just one example.
1: I, I was, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking about um, the like team backlogs instead of product backlogs. Yeah. Um, really, um, we were just talking about this previously, but uh, local optimizations versus systems optimizations.
2: Yeah, and I think about when you have multiple backlogs, and I've got these. They're not even product owners. They don't own the product. They're more like team owners or something like that, right? They, they own a team. Um, the words matter, right? Like Ken and Jeff picked specific words. They picked product owner, not product leader, not product manager, right? The product, they own a product. That was their intent, right? Um, and they they said product backlog. It's for the whole product, not for the team. And, and when you start changing that, there's, there's effects that, that – maybe seems small from the outside but when you start putting it together i think it cascades really fast so like what i see when when you have these team backlogs is you end up scaling demand instead of scaling delivery yeah. so you're scaling how much work there is across the system and then these components are doing that and you're managing dependencies instead of getting rid of them or if you just have like we're supposed to have like one product owner one product backlog one to many teams that's going to give you multiple teams to deliver done working product, but one under once a product, right? So I, I think that that's, I guess that's the biggest gripe that I have with Scaled Agile Framework is that a lot of, it doesn't have to be done that way, but that's the way that uh, a lot of, te- a lot of organizations interpret it, right? Like there's nothing saying that you can't have a done working increment every single sprint if you want, and you couldn't have a PI planning by every sprint. There's nothing that's saying you can't do that and safe, but no one does it that way. Right. Like, and I think that's part of the problem. You don't get the done until, you know, maybe once a quarter if you're lucky.
0: Right. Yeah. And I do want to, I, I want to be fair. There are a lot of companies who are doing really wonder, wonderful things with safe, but I think uh, they often find their own way, and the guidance isn't as helpful as it could be. Um, the, the One of the things I will say is, uh, the Scale Agile framework does talk about Agile teams. Uh, they don't talk about Scrum teams, they talk about Agile teams, they talk about Kanban, but then they, they, they pluck in the word Scrum Master and Product Owner and drop that in there. I'm like, could you maybe call them the Safe Master, or maybe call them the Safe, like call them, again, if you think this is a great pattern and you think it's a good pattern to have these team level backlog owners and these people who are coordinating work across teams, if you think it's a good idea and and they do and people have been successful with it, that's great. Call them your own thing, take some ownership of it. Don't co-opt the word of something else because what I'm really worried will happen is this really great idea of product ownership and the scrum master as servant leader and, uh, empower enabler of teams is going to be damaged by all of these implementations that are using the words but not the intent is so I like what you talked about earlier they're missing the intent and then that will damage that will just make the the concept toxic everywhere
2: yep, I agree, yeah, I think. <sighs> Yeah, it, that's that is the problem. Is they're using the same words to mean two different things, right? And then that gets a lot of people confused that aren't in it every day or don't have the deep knowledge of of this of this area. Yeah. And
0: maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the pattern of having a team backlog and a team owner and having a person whose main job it is to coordinate across teams. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's the best practice. Uh, and I I. I I could discover that. Right now, it's all mixed up in the language that they're co opting.
1: Do you, do you do any safe training? I, um, uh,
0: true story, I took the five day training in Boulder from Dean Leffingwell. Um, I did attend his class. I have, so I I, I, I want to make sure whenever I'm going to attempt to critique something, I have a little bit of understanding of it. So I did take the five day class. Um, I, your listeners may know this. Um, when safe was originally released, Ken Schwaber, uh, my boss, uh, came out with a fairly scathing blog post. I think it was unsafe at any speed that he came out with very scathing, uh, blog post about what he was worried that this was doing and what he was seeing. Um, and I'm not Ken, so I'm not going to comment on his writing. I read it at the time. Obviously, D- uh, Dean Leffingwell read it at the time. So I show up to his class doing the introduction. It's like, hi, I'm Steve Porter. I'm from I'm from Scrum.org. And his immediate response to me was, "Does Ken know you're here?" <laughs> and it's like, yes, yes, he does. He does know I'm here. Uh, and I and I did learn something. It was uh, it was any you spend five days learning about something new, you're going to learn something and. Uh, some of the learning was the the type of learning that's like oh that seems really weird I'm not sure I'd want to implement that and some of it was hey that's really neat practice I could see why they find some value in this um, that being said I have never taught it in another environment um, I we have many PSTs who do teach safe training uh, and uh, when I talk to them about safe they do a really good job of Clearing up any myths I may have around it. Uh, and they talk about, and they will acknowledge that some of the material and some of what they're, what they're asked to teach. It's like, ooh, this does not seem very good, um, but they're good trainers. They're good consultants. They work uh, with their customers to provide value. I don't know if either of you do what your experience with it is.
2: I've, I've worked. Um, some safe. There is um, one client I worked with where I came in and I didn't really know it was me working safe. And this day one, they're like, oh, actually, we're doing PI planning today. It's the first one. We just started this big, you know, these multiple release trains. Can you go help them? And, and this client, um, we ended up doing safe for about a year. And after about a year, we got into something more agile. We get into more of a monthly delivery um, and monthly planning cadence. Um, we combined a lot of backlogs, figured out what the planning process was going to be. It was an incremental thing. You know, first it went from a two-day, you know, PI planning to a one-day PI planning to a half a day, and then none. Like so, there was, there was a whole phase there. But like, it was where they were at, and from where they started to safe, it was, um, it was a good thing for them. Like, it it took them one step forward, but it wasn't the destination. And that's what I helped them to understand. Like, well, how responsive do you want to be? Because this is only going to get you this far. Here's your ceiling. Are you okay with that ceiling, or do you want to take it to the next level? And they wanted to take it to the next level. Yeah,
0: that's an awesome story. Thanks, and that's that. And uh, certainly, there are a ton of agilists right now. If I'm, I'm a Twitter user, so I'm, I'm often on Twitter, and the vitriol you see towards Safe is shocking for me. I'm, i I there's a term I've been using. I'm going off on a tangent here, if you don't mind. There's a, there's a, a term I've been using. It's agile curmudgeon. And on Twitter, there's all of these people, and usually they're a little older. Um, Some of them have been around since the Agile Manifesto days, and it seems to be they revel in talking about how crappy everything else is. And uh, safe, obviously, is an area where they will uh, talk about how crappy it is and how bad it is. And I don't know, how can you be an Agilist if you're not generally optimistic? I always wonder how curmudgeons embrace uh, some of the core tenets of Agile. I mean, the, the we are looking for better ways. Isn't that like one of the very first lines in the Agile Manifesto? It's like we are looking for better ways. And I spend all of my time saying nasty things about all the other stuff I'm seeing around me. It's like, like how are you ever going to find something better if all you're focused on is how crappy
1: everything is? So what do you think for, um, cause as you were talking about it, what came to mind was similar, um, animosities with the Kanban and scrum community, Ooh. maybe mm, three, three years ago, five years ago. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, I, am not a Twitter user that to me just is a whole level of stuff I don't want in my life, <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm curious, since you have a pulse on that, is do you, do you see similarities between the two? And one, I guess does does that animosity still exist to uh, the same degree for Scrum and Kanban? And the reason I ask is because I, I feel like with the PSK Scrum.org at least has taken a very deliberate step forward to say, hey, look, we're let's move beyond this and you know building bridges, uh, the, which which is all great stuff. But I'm curious if I'm just biased to that, um, or if it still exists out there. Cur- curious your thoughts on that.
0: So it might be. Uh, because of the audience that I listen to, so there's always the the problem that you're you're tuning into the things you want to listen to, and you're tuning out things you don't. Um, I am not seeing the same level of uh, animosity from the the people who are proponents of the two different approaches. Uh, I still, I, I and this could be a level of maturity. Scrum was first, Kanban came second. Um, I'm seeing less scrum people be antagonistic towards Kanban. Uh, I am still seeing the occasional people who, uh, like continuous flow. They like the, the, the freedom that Kanban gives you looking at scrum as being additional overhead. That's not needed. Hmm. Right. So there's I find if it's an animosity is too strong a word, but I do find a lot of people look at Kanban and they just don't see the value of scrum. I see very few people who like scrum looking at Kanban and saying it's just stupid. Um, and my approach is always been, they're both great. Get value from both of them if you can. And uh, as I said earlier, if uh, for whatever reason, the constraints that the Scrum framework brings with it—and it does bring constraints—I'm not going to—I'm not going to lie to you and say that there aren't rules you need to follow. Right? Scrum's got rules, um, and if you don't follow those rules, you're not doing Scrum. Um, if those constraints don't bring you any value, uh, and you would rather uh, not be constrained in that way, then please do Kanban. Uh, I, actually, I think I would—if you don't want the constraints that Scrum gives you. I see value in having some constraints, and Kanban has some constraints in it. If you're doing it well, it has some constraints in it. They're a bit more lightweight, they're a bit more flexible. Then please investigate that and do that. What I what I would discourage you from using, from doing, is if I'm finding the constraints from Scrum a bit too much. Um, the like I have to create done increments every month. Like that's never going to happen here. All right, let's ditch that and let's go to Kanban because Kanban has no constraints. It's And I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. Don't don't assume that Kanban is going to give you value because you're now putting stickies up on the wall. Um, immature Kanban uh, is uh, you run the risk of not continuously improving, not understanding your system. Uh, that's one of the things I loved about working with Daniel Vacanti when we were looking for this partnership in the Kanban community is he really, uh, he talks a lot about the constraints that Kanban has in it, that he talked about a lot of people not understanding. Uh, The concept of the service level expectation, that SLE. When I initially took my Kanban training, uh, and I did take Kanban training years ago, this idea of an SLE, like a bit of a constraint on the delivery of, of work items, was something that Either it wasn't taught at all or it was, but we just kind of brushed over it because it was something that I missed. And then when I started talking to Daniel about Kanban and he talked about this this constraint, this thing, it's like, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. That's a great constraint to help you actively flow your work. And I think that's an important piece that some people miss.
2: Yeah, when I did kanban training earlier in my career like they didn't talk about work item age at all and once i saw daniel talking about that i was like well that's awesome this makes a lot more sense you know the sle work item age uh, now we're actually ma- actively managing the work in process like that wasn't that wasn't happening it was just like well we're just going to put a limit on it and you know we're just but well, we're not going to actively manage it that's what i actually saw teams doing and so this is uh, i think when you apply it the way that they're intending yeah there there are constraints there but I think, like you were saying, Steve, I see the same thing where yeah, we don't like all the constraints uh, that Scrum has. So we're going to go to Kanban so that we don't have to do all these things and really just want to stay working the way they've always working. And just we'll put some different names on it to satisfy whomever is out there in the organization that says we have to be agile. And and that's you're not going to get what you need. So Jeff and I, we were talking about um, this model we draw. Um, and I actually think I got it originally from a face-to-face that I was at. Where on one axis, on the y-axis, uh, we might have um, maturity. And then on the other one, we have, um, help me out here, Jeff. Another on one, it's autonomy. it's autonomy. And there's a sweet spot right up at the 45 there, where it's like, when you're there, that's that's where you want to be. But if you, you have, if you have a very mature team and you don't give them enough autonomy, um, they're going to be very frustrated. Likewise, if you have a team that's very immature and you give them a lot of autonomy, you're going to have massive chaos. And so a team that can't handle the constraints of Scrum probably is going to have chaos if they don't really understand Kanban and they just try to implement pieces of it. Um, not saying Kanban's bad, it has the same constraints. They just don't know what they are. And so they can call it what they want to call it and it's really not Kanban, right? So,
0: And the thing that I like about Scrum is it is fairly well-defined where Kanban has, I don't think, has that same level of well-understood definition uh, which, again, is its power. it's It's flexibility. Um, but i I do see value in having a common understanding, especially when you've got multiple people trying to work together. That common understanding of the process that we're working under uh, provides a ton of value.
1: Yeah, I was as we were talking before, i was I was waiting to chime in with this, but the the vast, it's almost a laughably absurd high percentage of the the quote-unquote Kanban teams that I have worked with it's when they say we're doing Kanban it's they they have visualized their workflow and that, that's where they stopped like let alone not even talk about whip limits yeah. or measuring and managing flow but hey we've got a board that we're putting stickies on so we're a Kanban team and it, it, the the point of this is not to pick on Kanban because exactly as you've been saying Steve it's like that's that's just as disastrous as a scrum team that does a daily scrum and they say, hey, we're, we're a Scrum team because we do a daily Scrum. Don't mind any of the other <laughs> 10 elements yeah, of Scrum. We haven't scrum.
0: released working software in a year and a half, but we're doing right. Scrum because we've got a daily stand-up.
1: Right. So I, I think there's danger in all of these things and maybe just misunderstanding, back to Jeff, your point, the, the maturity level that we are with a team and understanding. And our embracing of the framework or the process, whatever you're doing, Scrum or Kanban, is you need to have a certain level of mastery or maturity in this craft to to really think about. Um, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, but you, we were talking about like removing things, right? Like if we don't even know that we're supposed to have whip limits on as part of our workflow, uh, like how do we know the value of pulling these things out or removing things from a from a process? Yeah. So I, I just think in general, people have a tendency, and not picking on everybody, uh, don't want to generalize, overly generalize like that. But I think uh, oftentimes uh, teams will think they're at a higher level of maturity with understanding a framework than they're really at. Yeah. And, and if you're going to really challenge, you should be really challenging yourself, not that you can't pull something out. Again, if you want to create your own framework or your own thing, cool, do that. But really challenge yourself to understand why are we pulling this out? Like, let's re-examine what's the value of having this? Why is there a sprint retrospective? Why, Why is it there? What's the goal of having it? Are we, okay, now can we truly except that we understand why it's there and we're not getting to it. Is there another way of getting at it before just yanking this thing out? Because uh, we don't want to spend an hour and a half or whatever the time is uh, sitting down and talking about ways to improve ourselves. Cause there's no value in that. Yeah,
0: and that would be a good, uh, your listener, something I would really encourage them to do is when they are looking at making changes to how they work. And as I said earlier, change is important. Change is the only way you're going to get better. But as you're looking at making changes, a little bit of thought around, okay, why are we making this change? What's the benefit we're looking for? What are the risks that we're going to have by making this change? And when are we going to check to make sure that our assumptions about the benefits and risks of this change have manifest themselves? Scrum's great because it forces you. It's a forcing function. Every at least once a month, You're going to sit down and talk about the changes we made as a team. And hopefully we're going to understand where those changes made things better or made things worse. Um, There are other ways of providing that forcing function uh, that if you're not doing Scrum, you can have, regardless of whether you're doing Scrum or Kanban or anything like that, your listeners really should um, make it a goal to be a little bit more mindful about the changes they're making. And are they making us better? How do we know they're making us better? And if they have not made us better, be be have the courage to say, oh, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Uh, or if it did work, all right, great. Now what's next?
1: So I, I like where you're going with that, Steve. And I guess I'm going to put you on the spot here just a little bit. So when, when you're thinking about encouraging teams to have that experimental mindset and not just the new product that we're creating, but the, the process of, of how we're going about um, creating it, you know, putting on your scrum master hat, how, how do you, how do you have that conversation with the teams? Like maybe you're a sprint retro or whatever, the, the continuous improvement time has come and you're sitting there with the team. You know, how do you, how do you start that conversation with them or how do you go about prodding them?
0: Oh, I wish I, I wish I had a, a really solid answer to that. I'm, I am, uh, forever struggling about how to get value out of a sprint retrospective. And there are lots of different ways to do that. A uh, couple of things to kick off the conversation, um, often talking about the challenges that people had during a sprint, right? Uh, It's sometimes easier to come up with an improvement if you have a very concrete example of something that didn't go well. So getting teams to think about, hey, what sucked the sprint? And what can we do next sprint to make sure that this particular piece doesn't happen again? which is a little bit of a negative connotation, but sometimes it's easier for people to do. Um, so there's that, that initial starting spot. Uh, and the, the other option is to just um, dream blue sky, right? It's like, hey, is there anything, like mobbing is another good example. Is there anything crazy that you'd just like to try, right? Uh, and really challenge the team, on, hey, we're self-organizing. We could do whatever we want to a certain degree, right? We've got some constraints. Um, let's just try something crazy for a sprint uh, and see if it makes us better. Uh, sometimes those um, crazy ideas can lead to the biggest improvement that, improvements that team sees. And I'm, I'm curious what the two of you have tried or what you have seen.
2: Yeah, I like the poll... Uh, of- page from the woody zool book and ask the question a lot of times you know what what worked really well and how do we crank it up to 11 nice. um and then it's so i mean that's kind of his story of like where my programming came from they were pairing and he's like well pairing's working so good how do we crank this up well, let's try more people and, and do the same thing we've been doing with pairing and um and then that's kind of how they that evolved i think i've seen a lot of benefit for a lot of teams where they've talked about some really good things that are going on and then they're like, "Well." we're only doing that a couple hours of sprint. What if we did it for a day? What if we did it for a couple days? And then like, it just becomes more of their culture and the way that they actually work um, because they just uh, accelerate the things that are going so well. Yeah. Cool.
1: I, uh, did, I, I've done it twice and you, you, you can only really do it a few times before it loses the, the, not luster isn't the right word, but the surprise, but the, the TRIZ, uh, the liberating structure TRIZ. I, I love doing that. And the two times that I've really so, what one was with a team, um, you know, they were starting to, th- and they all felt it, right? They they all felt like they were putting in too much time. There was a lot of demand with them, starting to have negative work life balance, and and so just putting the question, like, you know, what you know, what is life going to be like if we continued working 60 hour work weeks or something like that in six months from today? You know, what are the effects going to be? I can't remember exactly how I phrased the question, but then, you know, everybody was throwing up stickies and then, you know, we get 10 minutes into it. It's like, okay, well, what of these things are we already feeling today? Right. And like really getting them to self-recognize this and look for the changes. Um, I did a very similar exercise with with another group uh, at a client recently, just saying, again, I can't remember exactly the, the, uh, the invitation, but it was something like, what can we do to make sure that we're damaging trust with one another? Because the, everybody was having tr- trust was the the big topic with people. And so, I mean, they just lit up this board. It was probably like 50 stickies, uh, you know, so um, maybe even more so, but then having them take a step back and say, okay, well, h- what of these things that we could do to damage trust are we doing today? What of them are you thinking about even starting to do today? And, you know, I, I think that was a, uh, an opportunistic moment for them to just take a step back and analyze. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You know, this is, we're, we're definitely already on the path to devastation right here. Uh, Dramatize it a little bit or, you know, make it a little bit more dramatic. But um, those are, I I just like that exercise to get people thinking in a, in a retrospective or really any type of uh, improvement event. Cool.
2: Yeah. Just another tip. I like to, try to get other people to run the retrospective, not just a scrum master. And so I think um, there's a certain amount of empathy that happens when someone has to go up and facilitate that. And then they can come up with some different ideas of how to run it. Maybe you start teaching people liberating structures. Maybe it's not just a scrum master that's trying to always organize those things and people are are contributing and really having more of an open mind in the future when they try different facilitation techniques. Um so I've, I found that to be really valuable too when people are struggling to find the value for the retrospective.
0: Yeah, very cool. I I I like that one. I, I like being a lazy scrum master. It's like that's not my job, that's your job. I'm just here to make sure it happens.
2: I I got a funny story. So I was teaching a, a PSF um right before Christmas, and my brother we were talking about him in a previous episode. He's just got out of the military and he's going for his MBA and he wants to be a product owner and um we'll come down to my psf and, and go sit through it and you know maybe this will give you a better understanding of what it really is because he was really struggling with you know that or or being a product manager or like what do i really want to do like what's the difference and why do i why should i care about this scrum thing you tell me about and um and we were talking about the different roles and And he's like, so the scrum master role sounds pretty much pretty cake, pretty easy. He's like, why would everybody (laughs) want to be a scrum master? And I'm like, well, it's not like, it's all the soft stuff, right? Like you have to make sure this stuff happens and you have no authority to make sure it happens. And so it's, and so we started talking about it and he related it a lot to his military career where, you know, he didn't have a lot of say on like how they were going to do something. And he had to influence even as an officer, but as a, you know, mid-level officer uh, a lot of superiors, a lot of different people to to make big changes. And he didn't have any authority there. And I'm like, you're doing the same thing. You're making organizational change without any authority, but you're doing it all the time and you're making it with the team, but you have no authority there either. So like, that's the difference. Right. And, and he was like, Oh, that makes a lot more sense. And I can see why you would need that person, um, yeah. you know, within your organization.
0: One of my best analogies. And I am, I'll give credit to this where credit is due with Ben day, uh PSD out of Boston, who was just awesome. Um, talked used the analogy of curling and as a Canadian i I feel a little fond of curling for your listeners may not know that's the thing where you like throw <laughs> rocks across ice and people sweep and yell a lot uh, and he talked about uh, the reason they sweep is it actually influences the rock they don't touch the rock they they heat up the ice and by heating up the ice in front of the rock it actually encourages it to move and if you ever watch high-end curling it moves a lot um, and that's the scrum master but you can't touch the rock. You have to influence the rock. And it's that it's that whole set of, I can't force you to do something. How can I get you to do something? And how can I get you to see the value in doing uh, these things so that you want to do them yourself?
1: That's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It is. Yeah, That's a great analogy. I think I'm going to steal that one as well. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Fende, give credit and then then you can keep
1: taking it. Yep. The just the first time. Then yeah. after that. Yeah. <laughs> another good analogy
2: real quick one here um i was uh, in a psf and um the scrum master had just gone on uh, maternity leave and she just came back and we got to the scrum master slide on like you know the first half a day or whatever and it's like really early on and they're like yeah we the scrum master one because they had just kind of started they're like you know we never knew what this person did but when she was gone, like things just didn't work really well. And I think she's a lot like the oil in our engine. She just keeps everything running smoothly. And I just love that analogy because it was really insightful coming from someone who had just started, you know, Scrum was in a half, you know, maybe had done it for a few months and was in a first half day of training and, and they used that analogy. And I'm like, I'm stealing that. So I stole
1: that one too, uh, uh, going forward. So is there anything at this point that you want to plug, Steve? Um... Uh, fuck, no. <laughs> I think I should have
0: some. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I, I, really, I really don't. Like, other than I, I think all of your listeners, I, guess I can plug the Scrum.org website. I'll do that.
2: Thanks for coming on, Steve. We really appreciate your time. Um, it was a great conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for this. And I really want to encourage your listeners to take advantage of any opportunity you can to learn more about Scrum, Agile, product delivery, agility in general, um, by listening to podcasts like this, awesome podcasts, engaging with PSTs. Um, the Scrum.org website has a blog where PSTs like Jeff and Jeff are able to blog and all sorts of other PSTs from around the world. So it's a really great uh, place where you can learn more. Uh, there's all sorts of free resources, learning resources on the Scrum.org website. Uh, we don't ask anything of you. You can just show up and absorb Everything, if you create a profile, it allows you to track some of the learning. So there's some additional benefit there. So tons of free opportunities to learn. And if you would like to um, learn more, uh, maybe higher bandwidth learning, obviously opportunities to spend a couple of days with trainers like Jeff and Jeff uh, around the world. There is nothing, uh, nothing that replaces spending two days with another group of people learning about the challenges of being a scrum master or a product owner, or the benefits of adding flow and Kanban to your scrum teams, or talk about scaling or agile leadership. Those two days are super, super intense, provide a ton of value. um, And it's just a good thing to think about as we kick off 2020 and you're thinking about how do I want to improve this next year? Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire.
2: We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google
1: Play Store. See you next time.